Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. It's Monday, June 11th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Kishore is on break this week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at the $5 or more level at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Of course, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And I'd like to take a minute also to encourage you to write a review, if you like the show, of course, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, because that really helps us build our listenership. Our regular listeners probably know that we've made some changes in the last few months, and we think they're really positive. We've added an up-to-date segment, and we're also working on a couple of other projects that we are excited to bring to you in the next few months. One theme that we've covered on this show before, but that deserves even more attention, is virtual reality. It's hard to underestimate the promise of VR, and yet very few people have actually experienced it. Even so... The way that it's going to change the way we think about ourselves could be profound. In April, there was an issue of The New Yorker, and in it there was an article by Joshua Rothman called Are We Already Living in a Virtual Reality? Where he talks about the fact that virtual embodiment, this idea that you can project your own body image into a virtual space, is already changing how we think about who and what we are. Before virtual reality, one of the only ways in which you could have this kind of an experience is if you had an OBE or an out-of-body experience. And anyone who has had one of those experiences where they feel as if they are floating outside of their body and actually observing their own body describes it as a life-changing event. The sense that your consciousness can exist outside of the material self or the material body. Now, as neuroscientists, we know that there's no evidence that that's possible. I mean, certainly, when you alter the biology of the brain, you also alter consciousness. In fact, Michael Pollan's new book, How to Change Your Mind, about psychedelics, is exactly is, is making exactly this point. And yet, after you've had that experience of changing your mind in such a profound way, it's hard to go back. And it's hard to continue to maintain that same sense of self, that same sense of a unitary consciousness um, when you've experienced some of these bending, uh, some of these ways in which your consciousness has been bent. For example, 
let's say that you're in a virtual reality and you get to the point where the things that you're looking at really do feel as if they are part of your body. We all actually have this experience to some extent when we drive in a car. Our sense of where our body begins and ends actually begins to extend out to the the boundary of the car. That's why when you go from being used to driving a big car in all of a sudden into a smaller car, it can feel claustrophobic. And the other way around, that if you're used to driving a smart car, like I was for many years, and all of a sudden you get into a normal-sized car, it feels huge. But maybe this idea that virtual reality is going to change how we perceive our own consciousness in an individual basis is pretty obvious and not that surprising. What most people think as the con of virtual reality is that we're all going to become socially isolated. You know, it might be so seductive to be in this virtual world, one where we have so much more control over what we experience and how much money we have and and what success and power we yield, that we won't want to leave that and go back to the quote unquote real world. But Peter Rubin, an editor at Wired Magazine, thinks that there's an even more important story that we haven't actually been thinking about too much. And that's that virtual reality is going to change how we empathize with, with each other. How, in fact, we deal with each other on a social basis. He's a techno-optimist. So he doesn't see VR technology as becoming, as leading our species to become more and more isolated. Quite the opposite, in fact. He's covered virtual reality for years at Wired Magazine, but also other outlets like the New York Times, GQ, Rolling Stone, and elsewhere. And he's just released a new book called Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Peter Rubin. This episode is sponsored by Kiwi Company. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math super fun. Recently, KiwiCo sent us a crate that my four-year-old son just loved. It came with a whole bunch of really unique ideas, ones that I hadn't seen before, even though, of course, we try to do a lot of things that are STEM and art-related. The materials were really high quality, the instructions were easy to follow, and he had a really good time. He learned about rainbows, he got to work with his hands, and what he made is actually something that I'm excited to keep. KiwiCo's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation that they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. And no screens required. With five different types of projects, there's something for kids of all different ages, from 2 to 3, all the way through 9 to 16 plus. They create hands-on projects that are not only super fun, but also educational, but in a way that even the kids like it. KiwiCo wants kids to be fearless innovators, so they design projects to help them develop their creativity. They're also super convenient. Absolutely everything you need to build a project is in the box, which means no extra trips to craft stores or elsewhere. And if you've got a niece or nephew or another kid, this is a perfect gift because you can get them a subscription, which means that it's the kind of gift that keeps on giving. KiwiCo is offering Inquiring Minds listeners the chance to try one of their kits for free. So to redeem this offer and to learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com minds. Again, that's kiwico, K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash minds to try KiwiCo for free. 
Peter Rubin, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So usually when we talk about virtual reality, the first thing that people envision is someone by themselves in a room with a bunch of equipment on their face and body alone. And that's exactly the opposite of what you've been interested in. So I want to start there. What made you think about VR as a primarily a social cultural change that's coming? As a social thing, so there are kind of two parallel tracks as to kind of how this came about. But on on the social side, I think it was just the very first time I did any sort of a VR demo that had another person in it, a real other person. Certainly there have been kind of computer-generated characters or or people in some sort of a a video environment. But the first time that I was in a networked experience with another person, it was the thing that I had been waiting for, right? And it was the thing that at the relative infancy of this technology – Everyone knew it was possible, but they hadn't gotten there yet. And then the first time it happened, it looked terrible. I mean, the, the person moved awfully, and it was a like really glitchily scanned kind of approximation of a face. But it didn't matter because it was about the fact that when they moved in real life, their avatar moved a little bit as well. And you really got the sense that you were sharing this moment, regardless of how pedestrian that moment was. And from that point on, for me at least it was this demarcation between VR as everybody has thought of it up until now, which is largely, at least in the the present era, kind of a gaming tool, and it became a means of connection as far as the way that I kind of sought out these stories. Yeah, I mean, that it really is surprising to me. And now I'm really envious because I want to see what that's like. I mean, I remember when people first, you know, were talking about VR and you know, I'm not a video game person. And so it really didn't hold much appeal to me. And I just happened to be hanging out with, you know, some friends when they had, you know, an Oculus Rift system or one of those. I can't remember which one it was. And they were like, just try it. And it blew my mind. And it made me realize that, like, I have no idea what the future holds because it holds VR. And I don't know what that means for anything. Not like for education, not for how we think about neuroscience, not for how we perform, because it's so, you know, that experience, as you describe in your book, it's like until you do it, it's just terrible for, you know, people who haven't had the experience to to sort of be a witness to this. It's hard to imagine how mind blowing it is. That's exactly right. And I think the phrase is, is it's kind of like describing a dream to someone where you can be accurate but you're never going to give someone that empirical sense. Can can I ask you what was that thing that you tried? I'm yes. sure you remember it. Yeah, so I tried a bunch of things, but the thing that got me the most was the screensaver. It was like literally just this, I guess, I don't know, would you call it an application uh, where I was just standing there and all of a sudden a blue whale swam by. And it was the first time in my life that I, I had ever been able to conceive of the size of a blue whale. You know, I'd seen skeletons and museums, I'd seen pictures, I'd seen like, you know, oh, look, there's a blue whale next to like 10 buses and see how much bigger it is. But it, I couldn't imagine that. And then there it was. Even in a museum, if you saw a skeleton or some sort of a reconstruction, it's not moving. It's not animate. When you're there with it and this is and you got the feeling and you knew your rational brain knew this was an assemblage of one and zeros, right? This was moving by according to some sort of script. And it wasn't even moving by you. It was kind of on a flat screen. And you can really abstract out what VR is actually doing. 
but that feeling of watching it like you can reach out and touch it. Yeah, and that made me think about like one of the biggest problems I had in terms of learning anatomy, neuroanatomy in particular, was going from two-dimensional images to three-dimensional understanding, right? Which is what we need if we're going to really look at these neuroimaging data in a in a in a sort of um, in with with real understanding. And it made me understand that like any any person now, ten years from now, who's going to be learning neuroanatomy is going to be in VR, is going to be looking at a three D rendering of the brain that they can walk all around and inside and take a look. And it's going to be it's going to take them ten minutes to learn what took me like months to figure out. Visualization is such a huge part of and li- like you said, none of us really know what the applications for education are or or anything else. We can imagine based on what we need it for, but there are so many use cases that are that are past what we are envisioning VR to be able to do, or VR and kind of mixed or augmented reality being mashed together. Like imagine walking through a brain, and if it was in a VR headset, you could do it anywhere. Or if if the headset or if the display was clear, it would just be suspended in the middle of the room and you and everybody else could walk around in it. I mean, there was there was a, a pediatric surgeon uh, two, three years ago in Miami who had to operate on an infant. And before he did it, he used a visualization of an infant heart to know exactly kind of where he was going to go, what he was going to do. And he attributed his success afterwards to this VR simulation that he was able to kind of navigate. Yeah, I mean that story in your book really moved me and it made me realize that, you know, this is just this is just around the corner for a lot of these kinds of applications. What I'm still not convinced on though, Peter, <laughs> is this idea that um, about the social side of it. And so, you know, you describe especially in your last chapter what it might be like to live in a world 10 years from now where, you know, this is kind of ubiquitous, everybody has, you know, a really light uh what do you call it? Life lens. Oh, the hypothetical. (laughs) Um, Should have trademarked it. (laughs) You know, uh, really light pair of glasses that essentially they can see all this, this, uh, these visualizations through. Um, And then you describe sort of meeting someone and kind of, you know, going to a virtual concert and then that person being at that experience too. And I guess that's the thing that I still struggle with is that why is that better than actually going out to a concert and seeing that person in person. That's that's what I think I'm still, I'm still, you know, because I haven't had the experience that you have had of being in a network network simulation. Um, to me, it's always going to be better until I do it <laughs> to go to the thing and see the person. See, well, you you jumped all the way to the end. You <laughs> yeah, you sorry. went through. No, it's fine. <laughs> Just let's get past the first 250 pages and get right to the speculative epilogue. Now that's fine. Uh, I think that. There's no intrinsic judgment to be made about one versus the other once you get to a certain point of quality of that simulation. And obviously, we're not there yet. But what I would argue, and hopefully what I do argue in the book, is that there are a number of different communities for whom VR provides a social outlet that they can't necessarily access or realize in their day-to-day lives, whether it's accessibility uh, because of physical limitations or certainly social anxiety. I think for a lot of us, we would think, why would I do this in a headset when I can do this in real life? We're also maybe not the privileged few, but we're certainly privileged to have that that freedom. Uh, But then There are interesting dynamics that emerge when this is happening in VR and back away from that kind of speculative portion and and kind of move back to how people are doing it. And that is that it's not so much about 
Well, different different people have kind of different concerns. Some people care more about what are we doing, and some people and companies and users care more about who you're doing it with. And so you're going to see uh, in, in much shorter time frame than 10 years, you're already seeing, uh, or certainly in the next few months, this ability to go into some sort of a spectator event and share it with other people. You can already do that uh, in a lot of different ways, uh, whether that event is live or, or uh kind of rebroadcast. But what happens when you are sharing a virtual experience with somebody else, through this combination of kind of lightweight anonymity, uh, or at least that confidence that's born of remove, and the sort of casual low stakes intimacy, when you're embodied in VR, meaning, you know, uh, the thing that you did when you saw the whale, you look down and you didn't see a body. You just saw a floating kind of bathysphere or kind of undersea cage. But when you're embodied as an avatar and you you have your hands and you can use your hands and you can kind of look down and see the rest of you, what goes from feeling wildly kind of immersive and fantastic brings in kind of all these sociological dynamics as well. And so what happens is when you choose to kind of share your personal space with other people and your real world personality and your real life mannerisms come through because your hands are in there as well. And they're not there. Your hands are rendered, but they're only mirroring what your real hands are doing because you're holding these track controllers. So you get a sense very quickly of who a person is, which is very, very different from how the internet has always been when anonymity was a barrier. Everyone could be who they wanted to behind the screen name that they chose or or whatever it is. In VR, you can choose a screen name and you can design an avatar that looks like anything, but there's going to be an essence that comes through. And so that essence that comes through coupled with the confidence of the little part of your rational brain that follows you into VR is like, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter because you're not in real life. So that intrinsic distinction that we make between real life and VR can kind of work to our advantage as far as moving into social situations that we might not feel as comfortable with in real life, which is why it's so wonderful for people with social anxieties. And that's not to say that uh, a concert in VR is better than a real-life concert, depending on how you feel about other people, though, and uh, in personal space it might be. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, you know, you can get the best seats in the house and everybody can get the best seats in the house, and I can I can see that. But there's still still something really magical about, you know, my favorite band growing up was U2, and, like, the first time I saw them in concert, you know, it was, like, the most amazing experience to just see there's the person whose music I listen to all the time 10 feet away from me. And it was like, you know, I, I don't know how many videos or avatars or holograms I could watch and still feel that same, you know, Joy. So if we're if we're talking about a long enough time frame, then it's not going to feel like a hologram, and it may be an avatar that has a convincing enough solidity that it is the same. You're not going to get the sweat flying off Bono and and landing on the first couple of rows, but you're also going to have the benefit of being able to watch this maybe in a much more intimate space. You're not at Wembley Arena. You could be in kind of a a crowd of 30 or 40 people at a bar. That's one of the limitations of VR right now is how many people you can fit into a network space. So what ends up happening is that if this is a live performance, 
you've got the best seat in the house already. And you're in there with a small enough group that it really feels like this intimate shared experience. And yeah, in that use case, you are missing out on some of the ecstasy of the mass shared experience. But as technology grows and as enough people can fit into a space, you're going to get that kind of same, the the ecstasy of the collective, I think, is not going to be lost just because you're moving into VR. Yeah, but I guess I just still wonder, like, okay, so let's say we get to the point where, you, you know, Bono and you and two can play for a million people in VR at the same time. And, and I understand, it, you know, it's it's happening now. So there's something special about that. But then I still feel like I'm only one in a million <laughs> as opposed to, you know, in that space, in that reality like I know, even though, you know, he's never going to notice me and I make, you know, no difference to him. Um, there are only so many people that at that moment are, you know, sharing that experience with me. Do you know what I mean? I do. But he would also look at you and see you just as though you were at a concert. Just because something is happening in VR doesn't mean if it's a 360 degree video that we're talking about, like some of these really early versions of seeing a live performance, then yes, that's that's an asynchronous experience. But when I've seen Reggie Watts performing live in VR and he looks at the crowd, he can see me and I can see him. So there is that two-way kind of nonverbal communication. You are there for him just as he is there for you. So that gets me to my, my next uh, sort of query, which is on the internet, we know that people can be very cruel. Uh, They can behave far more immorally than they would in person. And there have been some studies coming from Scandinavia that have shown that part part of that is about eye contact. So if you block somebody's eyes, they're actually more more likely to be cruel. If you just have their eyes and you see nothing else about their face, that they're actually less likely to be cruel. So in VR, we're all wearing glasses. (laughs) glasses. <laughs> so presumably, even if we can see our eyes, that might be, you know, something that, I mean, is that, is that something that you th- think is going to be, you know, we're going to have avatar eyes or... We already do. Not, we already do have avatar eyes in a number of different platforms, but more importantly, that's being simulated right now, unless you have an add-on eye tracking sensor, which are coming to headsets starting as early as late this year. So when you add that in, what that opens up is... You know, if I'm using a social VR world right now, depending on what it is, if you are close enough to another person and you're facing in their direction, there's going to be this sort of automatic eye contact. And that only gets a little weird if you turn your head but try to keep your eyes on that person. You'll be able to do it. But in their view, if you move your head, you're going to be – your avatar is going to be looking somewhere else. But when you have eye tracking sensors in a headset – that's organic. That's that's a real eye contact, right? And it also allows for winking. And uh, it's basically an open or closed binary. You're not going to get kind of fine musculature and, and facial expressions coming through at that early, though there are technologies that measure kind of muscle microcontractions or use visual sensors to, uh, to, to map real-time facial expressions onto your avatar. So there is a Uh, kind of a roadmap of all these things being built in. But eye tracking is a thing that if you haven't experienced it in VR, you might think, oh, this is really lifelike. I really feel like I'm making eye contact with this person. But when you have eye tracking and you realize how much more it intensifies that feeling of theirness with the other person, it's really remarkable. Hmm. And so do you think that there is a kind of, you know, because there's more of you in the avatar than there would be online where you just, you know, essentially just words that people will be less cruel to each other? Or do you think that's a real danger of, of you know, VR networks, things just being trolled to the point where people don't want to 
participate. Sure. So, I mean, toxic behavior and harassment is one of the things that I'm most worried about as far as uh, possible or certain, certainly present roadblocks to kind of the development of the technology. But I would say that just by, by virtue of being embodied, that already is taking away one of the prime detachments that trolls enjoy. Uh, being conscripted into an experience means you're accountable in a way that you haven't been from behind a screen or behind a keyboard. If you're screaming at someone over a headset when you're playing Xbox Live or if you're send some, sending someone horrible graphic images via DM on Twitter or you're memeing them or whatever it is, none of that has a victim, right? You're getting your lulls and it's a, it's a mediated form of communication. But when you're in there with someone and you're doing it to their face – and your body is in there next to their body, it doesn't do away with it entirely, as I'm sure we'll discuss more, but what it does do is it makes it, it's something you really have to buy into. You really kind of, it it narrows the trolling pool to more of the like, not elite trolls, but like you have to, it's the difference between, this is a horrible analogy, um, it's the difference between shooting someone and stabbing someone. Do you know what I mean? Where yeah. there is a distance from behind a computer screen. In VR, that there's not. That's not stopping it. Certainly not. I mean, there, there are bad actors in every social VR platform you can imagine. Anywhere there's a networked opportunity or a networked environment, someone is going to take advantage of that to make someone else's life uncomfortable. But it also is, it has happened early enough that even if it's reactive, the people who are building these platforms are cognizant of this and are building in user empowerment and safety tools. It's you know it's 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 going to be cat and mouse for a very long time because you create a tool to keep users safe and someone will find a way around it or find a way to misuse it. But what I would say is, just because we're wearing our headsets, uh, it doesn't mean a our eyes aren't in there, uh, and it doesn't mean that it's going to. I think, lead to toxic behavior on the scale that the internet as a whole has made us used to. So, so you know, since your your beat essentially is culture, I want to sort of just talk about that a little bit more. And, and sort of one of my fears about this technology is that, you know, it's being written by people that aren't particularly diverse in, in you know, globally speaking. Um, it's being written for people, the initial users, the you know beta testers who aren't particularly diverse. Um, and so that worries me a little bit, uh, especially as we know now that a lot of machine learning algorithms that are designed to overcome human bias actually turn out to be really biased. So for example, you know, an application that is that is you know looking for criminality, you know, a lot of these applications now have shown that in fact they make the same biased mistakes as human Human beings do because they're programmed by human beings or they're trained on human data. So how do we address that issue? Or, or is it, you know, is it, is it at all addressable? Is it something that we should be thinking about? Um, because my fear is that, you know, these, all the uh, applications for VR are being written, not only by a specific population, but for a specific population. And yet potentially they could create a lot of inequality as we've talked about in terms of how these things are used. I, I agree. And I think it's something that the, the – I'm using the word community to mean the kind of developer and creator community uh, in VR and, and AR as a, as a large whole. Very aware of this as an issue. And I would also say that what's a pleasant difference between the birth of the internet and the 
birth, rebirth of VR is that certainly with regard to gender, the parity in the creator pool is much greater than it ever was. So, and it's something that every company uh, and every workforce is aware of and is working towards. And there are a number of kind of incredible accelerators uh, for women-only accelerators and making sure that the disparity that exists right now is kind of at the founder level. So there are a ton of women, and I'm speaking right now only only uh, with gender, and we'll get to the other stuff in a second. Right now, there are a ton of wo- women working in XR, which is incredible. Uh, it's making sure that women are at the forefront of the conversation, both as uh, owners and founders, and also having their concerns about the medium and its potential for misuse addressed as early as possible. Because you can if we're talking just to go back to toxic behavior, you can give users all the tools in the world, but any woman who has tried VR will tell you and has told me that walking into a room in VR, you find yourself reverting to the same social behavior patterns that are in real life, meaning you might navigate things with a little more trepidation until you read the room and you may avoid conversations or seek out conversations that feel like they're safe zones just as they might be in real life. So there's already an issue there. Globally, there are a few things going on. And one, what might be the most vibrant VR market in the world is in East Asia. China is absolutely enormous. That doesn't mean that it's addressing uh, racial representation. It's certainly not. And and in fact, may lead to uh, catering to men more than women in a, in a more kind of central and problematic way than is happening here. But I think that there is, from what I've witnessed at least, a good faith effort because you have, let's set the gaming world aside for a second, because while it was the first kind of monetizable use case for VR, I think the companies that are, that stand to affect the most change and stand to make VR a more culturally present force are working outside of that medium. And it might bring elements of gaming in, in order to, uh, make an experience a little more compelling or what have you. But if we're talking about the sins of the gaming world with Gamergate and everything else being visited on the rest of VR, I'm not sure that that's a foregone conclusion. I'm just more concerned about like, you know, people in Alabama who have to work two jobs, you know, have no money are certainly not gonna be able to afford a headset anytime soon. So they're not going to be consumers of VR, you know, while it's growing in this sense and that they're just gonna be left out of this whole world. Uh, I'm thinking more about poverty. I think a digital divide is a really interesting interesting uh, point to bring up. I will say that the the marketplace is diversifying in a way that I think is necessary for the growth of VR, meaning that we have seen up until now kind of these two tracks. You have the very expensive, as you know, Oculus Rift and its, and its kind of siblings that need an expensive computer or video game console to attach to. And so you're looking at kind of a minimum outlay in the high hundreds of dollars. And then you have these uh, very low cost mobile solutions, whether it's something that you drop your phone into like Google Cardboard or something that's a a little bit more expensive. Yeah, but those don't, oh, come on, they don't even compare. No, they don't compare. So what's happening now is you are seeing the birth of this this middle ground, so-called standalone devices. And those can be glorified mobile headsets, meaning that they don't have full what's called positional tracking, so you can't move around in a virtual space. But there are two, three, or four, I can't remember the final count, devices coming out this year that are doing that. And they are doing that in a wireless, no computer necessary, self-contained device. 
of course, that still brings with it kind of economic considerations. But when you are looking at something that's more of a holiday gift, that it, it's it's bigger than a stocking stuffer, but it's not a save a paycheck for, then I think those are only going to get more affordable. And as time goes on, I think that there's always going to be the, I think with any technology, distribution and democratization of usage of that technology is always going to be a concern. But I'm not sure that just because the first generation of high-powered headsets are expensive now, then we can say that this is going to be a a haves versus have-not situation. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the iPhone, when it first came out, it was very much have versus have-not. And now there have been so many copycat versions that have really cheapened the product. I mean, you can, you know, essentially sign up for a phone contract and get a free iPhone. Um, So that's encouraging to hear. I guess now I'm wondering sort of what the applications then are that you feel are most excited outside of the gaming world. So, I mean, in my mind, it's about education. It's about, you know, medicine. It's about sort of, you know, being able to walk into a a world that you can't experience easily, you know, without a virtual access. Um, But what do you see as the most kind of promising uh, sort of applications of of the technology? I think both of those are absolutely uh – incredibly compelling, one for its professional applications and one for its kind of uh, pedagogical applications. However, once you get outside those, and I would also say that education is going to depend on this being a shared experience as well. You can put a kid in a virtual art museum and let him him or her see a statue of David or anything up close. They're going to get through that and they're going to say, okay, what's next? And that's the thing that's such a common refrain in these early experiences that everyone has gotten to see. Oh, this is amazing. What's next? You don't want to go back and see that whale again, maybe once, but it would change everything if you were in there with somebody else. What other people do is they make an experience something that you go back to not for the experience itself but for what happened to you during that experience the vr needs to become the substrate rather than the attraction if that makes any sense so i absolutely put full stock in the potential of education and medicine being absolutely transformed and uh, certainly things like architecture and any sort of enterprise solution that's based on visualization is, is already seeing the effects of this but for mainstream general consumer usage it is going to be, in, in my mind, a place where people go to share experiences with other people. It, it's, there's going to be a lot less passivity to it than there is now. And things that excite me the most currently are cooperative experiences that you have that have nothing to do with games. They are multi-user experiences that may bring some facets of gaming into them, but they are there to provide a kind of a campfire of sorts, to provide this activity that you're all doing together. And there's much more of a premium being placed on these being cooperative pursuits rather than adversarial pursuits. There mm-hmm. is a lot of stuff where people just band together to do something and not against other people. And so it really does lead to these both a kind of surprising amount of goodwill that is generated just by virtue of doing this with other people and uh, and secondarily a thing that you want to go back to and try again. So while it sounds frivolous, the idea of a multi, multi-user multi pursuit, which can be, I mean, this could be a home for, for everything from people having kind of idle pastimes to people creating art 
in real time, performing in real time, immersive theater where you can go. It's hard to get a ticket to sleep no more. But when a troupe comes into VR, and after a certain point, it's not a human troupe. It's an AI troupe that's indistinguishable. Uh, And you open up all these incredible kind of cooperative cultural experiences. That, to me, is what begins to realize the promise. And if you want to talk about a digital divide, this, this in some ways helps to remedy the idea of a geographical divide. I mean, talking about the proverbial people in Alabama who there is no sleep no more, right? There is no fine art exhibit. I mean, of course there is, there are museums everywhere, but, but just for, for the sake of argument, you are bringing people together from all over the world already every day in virtual reality. And they're having conversations and they are creating things together and they are doing things together and they're forging these connections across regional and national boundaries that wouldn't be possible any other way. I mean, certainly the internet, but it's a, it, that leads to a different, it's a, it, it, it is an intrinsically different sort of relationship that emerges. I mean, I hope you're right. There's still a part of me that's, you know, a little worried about it because there there are things like we've seen that, for example, the Amazon same day delivery service like doesn't reach some of these underserved populations who potentially need, you know, fresh produce more than anyone else. Um, so, you know, I hope that that doesn't happen in VR, you know, where there's sort of like, you know, these kinds of artificial geographical divides that are surprising when you hear about them. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about what this means for our brains. Uh, so the more time we spend in VR, of course, they're, you know, our brains are, are to some extent plastic. They're changeable by experience. And now we are completely you know, giving new experiences that we, we really have no idea what long-term effect they'll have. Um, so first, let's, let's just talk very sort of you know, perceptual level in terms of vision. Um, do we know anything about how spending time in a virtual reality affects our ability to see outside of it? There are, I think there's a, there's a continuum of concern. And there are people who use it multiple hours a day and people who research in it uh, and, and say as long as your brain is done developing, meaning you're, you're, you're older than 16 uh, or 14 or 18 or whatever. Or 20 if or, you want a prefrontal or, cortex. Wonderful. Let's say 20. You're the expert in this, not me. <laughs> uh, I think that th- there's certainly a camp of people that say once th- once you get to that point, it's harmless. Of course, there are there are limitations to the way that we present VR to our eyes and thus to our brain right now that is leading to some concern. There's something called virgin's accommodation reflex. There's the idea of a single focal plane and how that can lead to eye strain. And so a number of companies are working on the idea of a multifocal display that will allow your eye to focus a little more naturally on images at different focal depths, even if you're using a flat panel display. Uh, and But then there are also people who are concerned uh, about the idea that what's happening to your neural pathways might not be the best. And that was not something I kind of set out to cover or even Mm -hmm. decide for myself. That's a conversation that I don't personally feel qualified to wade into the fray of given kind of my own back, my own background. Uh, There are a number of, I think, neuroscientists who are looking at this and a number of researchers who are looking at this. And so for me, I'm choosing to hedge my bets by what might seem excessive to some. It's rare for me to spend more than an hour at a time in a headset. And certainly there are a lot of people who go much longer than that. And there are a lot of people who think no more than 10, 15 minutes. I think it really kind of depends where where you fall. And, and I'm not necessarily sure that that is 
coupled to your kind of clinical expertise. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of us know that staring at screens all day will make us need bifocals earlier, and yet we still do it, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not like so, I mean, the, the the benefit of having a screen and being able to stare at it through your job is outweighs the potential cost of having to wear glasses later on. And and I agree, like, let's set aside the developmental side. But even, even in that way, like, sometimes I think about, you know, I have a four-year-old kid, and, and, you know, people say, well, why would you ever let him look at screens? It's going to affect his visual development. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, he's really adaptive right now. So maybe, you know, it will actually improve his ability right. to look at screens, which are not going to go away, right. you know, when he's 25. Uh, or so. they might in other ways. I mean, that's the other the other thing of this is that the what the development is leading towards is a wearable device that isn't necessarily an occlusive panel. Uh, it's going to be things we can see through and virtual objects might be kind of reflected into our eyes. And so so how is that different from like augmented reality? Like where do we where do we draw the line between augmented reality versus virtual reality? Well, I, I think right now they're very distinct things. I think that where a lot of people think this is going is that you're going to go into a single mm-hmm. device that allows you, if not to toggle between, then to have gradation. So there will be times when you're at home or in your kind of private life or in a kind of safe work environment, you might go fully occlusive and have what's thought of as like a conventional VR display. But then when you're out in the world and you're using it for other reasons, everything from recreational to educational, it will be functioning in a slightly different way. Okay. So you'll be seeing the outside world. And so where <laughs> it's a it's a question I don't have an answer to mm-hmm. as far as what this means for us developmentally. I certainly wouldn't want my child to spend more than five or 10 minutes in a headset. Mm-hmm. I don't have kids and mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't want them doing it before mm-hmm. a, a certain age. Um, but I think that just as any new technology leads to emergent social behavior patterns, like you said, screens are making kids adaptive in a in an interesting way. The kind of nightmare cocktail party story is my child tried to tap a magazine page or whatever it is. And so, yeah, there's a very real chance that there's a VR analog to that. We just don't know necessarily what it is yet because it's going to take much, much more time of people using this. And certainly there's there's a degree of market penetration or, or ever presence that we're going to need to see this kind of really take root and lead to something tectonic. That gets me to sort of the the slightly deeper question that maybe is just as unanswerable, which is the sense of how's it going to change our experience with experience, right? Our sort of memory for things, because um, that is something that you know I've I've been really interested in is is how we remember experiences. It's what I did my PhD on, and and. Um, you know, it, it already feels complicated enough without the added complication of yep. virtual experience um, to try to understand. And so did you come across in your in your research any kind of insights into whether how we remember our experiences in VR is the same or different from how we remember our experiences outside of VR? It's I did. And now it's not so much that we remember them in different ways is that we remember them in what seem to be exactly the same ways as as a real life memory, by which I mean, I think there maybe has been an assumption that it's something more akin to a photographic memory or a memory of a movie you see, where you think, oh, I remember seeing that movie, but that memory also is in tandem with things that are extraneous to that particular narrative that you are trying to remember. There's the sense memory of popcorn. There's what the seat felt like. With virtual reality, 
there was one really interesting study that a group of researchers in Germany did. They were trying to, they set out to prove that memories of things you did in VR, they, they thought it was being limited by people referring to it as laboratory memory. And that's in quotes. So they said, well, this is not helpful terminology. So let's divide things into the idea of an observation-based memory, memory test based on photos that you've looked at and participation-based memories, memories of things that you actually did. So they took a group of volunteers and they split into two. And one half of the volunteers watched a GoPro footage of a motorcycle ride through the countryside. And they watched it on a big TV that was directly in front of them. Uh, and then the other half watched that same GoPro footage wearing a headset and mounted on the table in front of them for them to put their hands on was a pair of mock motorcycle handlebars. And then afterwards, they did the same sort of memory test that you give to everyone after any sort of memory study. And what they found was not only that the people who had watched this footage in a headset with their hands on handlebars had better recall of what was and wasn't an image or a clip from that ride versus another another ride but it took their it took them a little bit longer as much as half a second longer to render a decision and what that told the researchers was that it was consistent with the fact that they were accessing those memories in the parts of the brain that a real life memory would be in as mm. opposed to where you store a memory of something you looked at and want to commit to memory Interesting. These are absolutely experiential memories. And so what's remarkable about that is you went to a friend's house and you put on a headset and you saw a whale. But your brain had probably ceased mapping the room you were standing in. So when I say, where were you, what would you say? Where were you when you saw the whale? Uh, well, I know. I was at the Tessa.com offices. <laughs> but where, like, when you think back oh, to seeing I see. that where whale. Oh, I see. Where was I? Yeah, I was in the ocean. You were in the ocean. Yeah. That's right. So... It's to me the the that sort of magic quality uh, that motivated a lot of this book or a lot of my interest in VR isn't that the memory is superior or inferior to a real life memory. It's that it is your real life memory. It's not it's not mediated. It's not something you saw on a screen. It's not even you know as a, as a quote immersive as a first person view video game can be you're still navigating that world using these kind of metaphors of control. Your thumb is on a button and your thumb is on a joystick for you to move around. But because you're embodied in VR, what you're doing with your body is what you're doing in VR. So the way your head is moving, the way your hands are moving, these are, these are your hands and head tracked. So there's no mediation happening here. When you turn your head to look at something, you turn your head to look at something. So you have the muscle memory and you have the sense memory aside from things that you can't really simulate yet, like smell and taste and stuff like that, but hearing and sight and even to a degree haptics. So that's all there. And so those are the things that build your memory of an experience. And so what's remarkable about it is not only does it throw wide open the doors to access to experiences, but those are experiences that you walk away from having them be part of your biographical memory. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. So I want to end with a, a kind of butchering of a, of a Bill Gates thought. Um, you know, he said something like, you know, we 
overestimate how quickly technology will change in two years, but underestimate it in 10. And then, you know, someone else, I can't remember who, turn that into we overestimate how technology changes, but we underestimate the cultural change it brings. So, you know, do you know who said that? I don't remember. Who said I don't that. remember. I don't remember. <laughs> but someone, someone really smart. I butchered enough me. quotes <laughs> in my lifetime that I don't even try to attribute others. <laughs> but in any case, I wanted to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, so um, you know, you seem pretty optimistic that, you know, technology and VR is changing very rapidly. Um, what do you think you're overestimating in terms of the technological change? Hmm. The technological change, not the cultural change? Yeah, we'll get to the cultural change next. Sure. Well, you know, the so the movie Ready Player One came to theaters a few year, a few weeks ago. And it is, for one, it seems to be kind of the first um, commercially successful movie about VR as we think of it, not counting nightmare visions like The Matrix, which can be said to be some sort of VR thing. Um, and so 20 years after this kind of first wave of, of schlocky movies like Lawnmower Man and Johnny Mnemonic, which were based on kind of great source material, we have a vision of VR that millions of people have seen. And the book that it was based on came out in 2011, before any of this happened. It was in the labs and it was filtering out, but there was no way to know in 2011 for the vast majority of us that we would be having this conversation in 2018 about how close we are kind of mechanically and technologically to to, to this vision of VR. So when I saw the movie, it felt, what was remarkable about it is, is that the vision of 2045 somehow felt so dated with regards to what we would be using and how would we would be using it. The idea of kind of this infinitely customizable metaverse, for lack of a better term, I think is where a lot of people are trying to go with this. It's what VR kind of helps, uh, it, w- what it gives rise to naturally, is we want to be able to go and do anything and do it with other people and be anywhere we want to be and have any any kind of experience. Technologically, though, this, you know, the sight of of people kind of jumping around on the sidewalks of Columbus, Ohio in the 2040s wearing things that look like something I have kind of in a in a pile of two-year-old headsets is remarkable to me. What those headsets are able to do is much more advanced than they are now. But as far as the form factor and and what we are able to do with the higher-end stuff, it's much closer than that. So technologically, there there's a not unpopular sentiment that within 10 years, a smartphone is going to be obsolete, right? Because it's been offloaded, because maybe it's a satellite device that we wear uh, in our pocket, or it's a processing unit or, or whatever it is. But the vision of what the platonic ideal maybe of the Google Glass was, uh, you know, before all the the stigma, like the, it was, it was a device that the the idea of it was not invalid. It was way ahead of its time with regards to what it was asking you to present to the world. Um, and so I think you're seeing a long tail of these devices shrinking and at the same time becoming more socially acceptable because it's remarkable to imagine people walking around in public with devices on their face. Of course it is. But all it takes is a, a killer device that everyone wants to have, uh, and you you kind of attach some prestige to it, uh, and it enabling something that you just can't do. Google Glass didn't let you do anything that you just couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So you you create, speaking of experience, an experiential buffet, so to speak, 
or that one thing that really moves someone or moves all kinds of people. And that's how the, that's how the network effect happens. But you, you combine experience and form factor and really smart product engineering and you, and you get to that point. So, uh, technologically trying to speculate something, going back to this sort of epilogue in the book that you brought up, uh, 10 years is a very difficult horizon to judge because you have a pretty good sense of five years and you have a pretty good sense of 20 years, but 10 is right there in the middle. So is 10 years enough time to really allow for that device to be something that becomes culturally ubiquitous? It's kind of 50-50. As an optimist, I think, yes, I think that there has been so much money already put into this and so much research already being put into this that the things that stand in the way are things that we are already working towards, whether that's something like 5G networks and incredibly increased throughput speed that you would need to have some sort of like immersive streaming experience uh, and display technology. You know, people are, are cracking those limitations in ways that are really creative and interesting. And you bring eye tracking into it and all of a sudden it's only the thing that you're looking at needs to be rendered in full, which gets rid of a lot of the like compute burden that you would normally have for these devices. And so all these little innovations, when you put them together, I really do think in 10 years, we're going to be so much closer to that sort of sport glasses ideal that can give you everything than any of us would put stock in in a casual conversation right now. Okay. So before we, uh, you answer the last question, I just want to remind our listeners that um, Peter Rubin's book, Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life is now available at fine booksellers everywhere. So let's get to the cultural change question. What do you think most people are underestimating in terms, the, in terms of the, um, the cultural change that VR is going to bring? I think that as difficult as it is to describe VR to someone, the one thing that you cannot possibly anticipate is what it's like to share an experience with somebody else in VR. And it's, it's really as simple as that, which is not to say that every experience is good and not to say that the first time you do it, you come out and you say, no, no, no that's it. It's over. Like my world has changed. But what it does is it kind of starts to fan this flame of realizing what this te- what this technology unlocks for you. And so I don't know if people ask me all the time and they always put it in this particular uh, phrasing. It's what's the killer app? And there's not one because for some people it's the ability to go to a soccer game and feel like they have the best view they've ever had. And for some people it's as simple as playing, I don't know, Settlers of Catan with your girlfriend who just moved across the country for college. I spoke to a, a, a high school last year and the thing that made, they had all just read Ready Player One. And so I kind of went through and I was like, here's what we have, here's what we don't have. And the thing that blew their minds the most was the idea that in VR, you could just sit and watch the same thing on Netflix with someone else. All they wanted was the ability to coexist and just share those moments. And we live in a world that is so decentralized And we're so used to this idea of co-location and everybody works remotely and we all video conference and we do this and we do that and our families are strewn around the country and around the globe. But when you are together with someone in VR and then you take the headset off, it's not like you were FaceTiming with someone. 
It's like you were spending time with someone. And I think that quality, which can be spun out into all these different applications, that's the energy. That's the motivating, the motivating energy that I think is, is the thing that is going to catch. So the thing that people think is going to sort of create the epidemic of loneliness might just, in fact, cure it. Doesn't mean you're not going to look stupid in the headset, but <laughs> inside you're going to be spending quality time with people. And that's the part that matters. Peter Rubin, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And I'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Eric Huddleston, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, a description of your own out-of-body experience or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac and our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Check him out, riansheehan.com. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.